Well, we're talking about the commitments that make us thrive, and I saw some of you thriving all weekend. Man, how do y'all do that? I mean, I, some, last night I saw some kids just dancing for like an hour. Um, I mean, they were just, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say any names, but I mean, this kid was like, you know, the whole time, and he was just, the moves were like Jagger, and I was watching him for about half an hour. Camden. It was um, pretty amazing to see that much energy, and I know uh, you guys are probably pretty spent, so uh, I'm going to make it pretty simple this morning. We're, we're looking at a, a passage in the book of James, and the reason why we know that, uh, that this is true, the book of James is true, is because this is Jesus' brother, and he's saying great things about his brother. Now, that doesn't happen, right? I mean, brothers were born for adversity. That's scripture, all right? Brothers were born to wrestle. Now, why, why do you ask why, why, why boys wrestle each other? Why do you ask? I mean, you might as well ask, why is the sky blue? I mean, boys just like to wrestle. They, you know, they just, you know, they just, you know it's just kind of a, they're, they're sharpening their horns. They're testing their metal on each other. And Jesus had, had a brother. His brother was named James. And uh, we know, you know, there's another James. There was a James who was one of the sons of thunder. You've heard of that, right? So uh, John and James uh, were both sons of the same uh, sons of thunder, Zebedee. But this was a different James because that James died uh, in about 44 A.D. And, and so we know that this, this, this letter was written earlier than that. And so James, this was probably Jesus' brother. And so, so to understand that, that a brother, somebody who knows everything about Jesus growing up, everything. I mean, brothers know you like, like, like nobody else knows you. They know all of your warts, and everything. And so here is Jesus' brother saying incredible things about Jesus. That is quite a statement. But what we're going to be looking at this morning is, is a word that has to do with a commitment, a word that has to do with a commitment. We're looking at the commitments that make us thrive. Last week, we looked at worship. This week, we're going to be looking at the commitment to truth, and there's a word that we use that represents us that says that we're a people of truth. So let's take a look at James, James chapter 2. Just a few verses, starting with verse 14. What good is it if someone says he has faith, faith, but does not have action or works? Does that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poor and clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace and be warmed and filled, those are just words, right? Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, but I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the, name, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. All right, let's pray together. Father, would you uh, bless us now to receive this word? Not only to understand it in our minds, but to believe it in our hearts and to live it with our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been called a lot of things in my life, and some of them by my own young children. I remember uh, when I first got here, I told you the story about my kids calling me hot lava because they wanted me to chase them and smother them. I don't know, but that's just one of the things they liked me to do. And when I wouldn't chase them and smother them by being called hot lava, they would call me Mrs. Hot Lava. (laughs) That's not the worst thing I've ever been called, though. Uh, Many, many years ago, a young boy uh, was was, uh, always in his father's arms as they came into the church, and he used to call me this horrible name. And I couldn't understand why his father wouldn't say anything to him, didn't discipline him about it. So a couple of times this would happen, and finally he got tired of it, and he came in, and he called me this name, and I looked at him, and I said, that's Mr. Poo-Poo Head <laughs> to you. You know that boy never called me that ever again. <laughs> labels, labels, sometimes they provoke. Sometimes we use labels to pigeonhole somebody or just kind of categorize them so that we don't have to deal with what they stand for, what they believe. Labels uh, help us to understand each other. In that sense, they're good. But labels, labels can uh, dehumanize people, make them into objects. What do you think of when you think of this label? Liberal. What do you think of? Don't, don't, don't say this rhetorical. Just think about it. What, what do you think of when you think of the word liberal? What do you think of when you, you hear the word conservative? What do you think of when you hear the word, the label, northerner? Yeah, I don't know about that one. What about about jock? What do you think of when you think of the word jock or geek? How about that? What about the word evangelical? Evangelical. Have you heard that word? Raise your hand if you've heard that word, evangelical. Raise your hand. Raise your hand high, real high, if you've heard that word. Yeah, everybody's heard that word. Okay. Now, uh, Raise your hand again if you've heard that word in a negative light, a negative light. So when you hear it in the news or whatever, uh, you, you hear it negatively. I want to read you to, uh, a, um, a little quotation by a guy named David Brooks. He's a columnist, a New York Times columnist. And he says, um, this is why so many people are misinformed about evangelical Christians. He's about to tell us the reason why people are misinformed about evangelical Christians. There's a world of difference between real-life people of faith, real-life people of faith on the one hand, and made-for-TV Elmer Gantry-style blowhards who are selected to represent them. Now, what does that mean? That means, let's say you don't like somebody else's perspective and what they stand for, all right, and you run a news organization, 
Are you going to get a reasonable person to represent that? No. You're going to find the wackiest person that you can find, and you're going to put them on TV just to make a cartoon out of that perspective. And that happens. And that's been happening for a long period of time. In fact, I, I confronted somebody in the, uh, the news media a couple of weeks ago about this. And um, the, the entire station came down, the satellite trucks, they all wanted to know more about what I had to say about it. But the pattern continues of making a cartoon out of this word, evangelical. And all evangelical really means is Christian. But the reason why it's important that we have this word is that it really represents the heart of Christianity. And, and when, when I say Christian, you know, a lot of the world just thinks of that as a cultural thing. Well, he's a Christian just because he, 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 she, he lives in the West, or he's an American. And so we use words and we need words like this because it represents what's really going on. So let's, let's look at, I'm going to show you three reasons why this word, we need to keep this word. And we need to define this word. This word is a good word. Three reasons why. So when I say why, whenever I say, all right, here's, we're going to look at why, then I'm going to give you the basis. Three, three reasons why this is a good word. Here's the first reason. This, this word, evangelical, is a good word, and we need to keep this word, and we need to define this word for ourselves, because it just simply means good news. You break that word down, E-U, you. Anything you put in front of, you know, any word that starts with E-U, most words that start with E-U, it, it means like eulogy. Eulogy is just simply a good, it, it just means saying a good word, a good word. And so... Angelical or angel is right in the middle of it. If you look at the word evangelical, the word angel is right in the middle of it. And what are angels? Angels are God's messengers. And so this is a good message. This is good news. Hey, I got some good news for you. That, that's, that's what evangelical is. It's, it's, it's historic. It's history that wants in and wants out. That's, that's the whole sermon. It's history, evangelical, is, is, is history about God that wants in. And wants out. It wants in and wants out. So first, let's look at, at the history of it. History. This is real history. That the scriptures attest to something that happened, that really happened. Now, let me take a look. Let me try something out here for a minute. I want you to, some of you all to guess how many, you, who knows what these are? Comquats. I didn't know what these are a few years ago. Now I own a com comquat tree. These are right off my tree. Thank you, Bob Miles, for t teaching me how you eat them. I, I thought you had to peel them. I'm sorry. I just, yeah. Don't try to peel a kumquat. You can spend the rest of the day peeling a kumquat. How many are in this? How many are in this? Take a guess. Somebody guess. 28. Somebody else guess. 32. 15. 18. Who said 18? Congratulations. You win the prize. A kumquat. So, uh, so someone said 28, someone said 15, someone said 18. So, so for you, uh, the person who said they're 28, uh, you, you live in a world where there are 28 kumquats in this, uh, in this jar, in this glass. Is that right? I mean, for you, the truth is that there are 28 kumquats because you believe they're 28, right? You believe they're 28. Somebody else believed that there are 15 in here, so there are 15 for that person, right? 
There are 15 in here for that person? Isn't that right? Uh, there are 18 for you. You say, well, that's ridiculous, Tim. They're, they're, you, you, you counted them. Yes, I did count them. There are 18. Now there's 17. I had to give away the prize. Is it true that there are 28 for one, there's 28 for one person and 15 for another person and 18 for another person? Is it true for that person? Is truth just true for you, in other words? Young people, you're about to go to a university where, where there are going to be truth claims that sound like that. That truth is only true for you. Maybe you've already heard that. The truth is just in the eye of the beholder. It's sort of like art, right? And, and, and people want to put faith in the category of art rather than in the category of the kumquat or how many kumquats are in or math, mathematics, right? We know how many kumquats are in here because I counted them and I told you. You either believe me or you, you don't believe me. But here's the thing. When, when you look at, at the book of James or you look at, at one of the books of the New Testament, you say, well, that's different. I mean, that happened a long time ago. How do we know that? that that's true. Well, how do you know anything is true? How, how do you know there, there's 17 kumquats in here? Can you know that? It, they're either 17 or they're 15 or they're 28 or they're 18. I mean, there are a certain number of kumquats in here. That's right, right? That's undisputed. There are a certain number. And I counted them. But see, here's, here's what happened with the New Testament. When people counted the kumquats, so to speak, and then they wrote about it, they saw what Jesus did. or They, they were a part of that history, right? They wrote it down. They wrote it down, and then they shared it. And, and guess what happened? Immediately, they made 50 copies of that letter, every one of Paul's letters. They immediately, so when Paul wrote a letter to the church, or James wrote a letter, they, they sent it to a particular time in a particular place, and we know where that is. And they immediately made 50 copies. That's why we have thousands and thousands of Greek manuscripts that attest to how many conquats are in the cup. We know, you say, well, that's not very scientific. I mean, uh, how do we prove it? Well, you, you don't prove history the way you prove everything else. You don't prove Abraham Lincoln existed by uh, some kind of scientific experiment. The, the, the scientific method is something that you repeat in a laboratory under certain conditions, and you try to see if it will happen again. History is something, you know, if you learn somebody's name, right, let's just say you need to introduce somebody uh, and you learn their name yesterday, right? Their name is still the same name today, right? It's historic. It's historic. And you know it. And you can say that name and you can remember that name and you can introduce that person to somebody else. You see, that's, that's the way history works. It's that basic and that simple. But, but people don't want to live under someone else's authority because they don't always feel the freedom in that. They don't always see the freedom in that. And that's our original problem. And so what happens is people discredit the scriptures. They discredit even history itself. They say, well, whose history is it? Who's telling that history? And they begin to separate something as simple as, yes, there are a fixed number of kumquats in this cup. And you can know how many there are, even if you don't count them yourself. 
You, 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 could, you could have all of us in this room count them. And let's say everybody comes up with 17. You can be very sure that there's 17. And yet we discredit it because we don't really want God to speak into our life. And that, that's what verse 19 is all about. It says, you believe in God. You believe. There's a certain way of knowing, right? You believe me that there's now 17 in there. You believe that. They're either 17 or they're not. And you can believe that they're act, that in something that's actually real, right? You can believe that they're 15 and you can be wrong. But what he's saying is you believe there's one God. Well, that's true. You do well because God is able to speak for himself. He's able to say, this is who I am. Don't you like it when you're able to say who you are instead of somebody saying, well, you're in this label. You're, you're, you're a geek or you're a jock or you're a liberal or you're a conservative. Don't you want to be able to speak for yourself? Well, what, what the book of James here is saying is that God does speak. He speaks into history and we're accountable to history. We're accountable to it. Let me tell you why this is so important. Let me, let me give you a really personal example of why it's so important to understand that, that we can know what's true by history, okay? Why is it so important that truth is real and, and, and historic? Let's just say, let's just say, now I hope you'll feel this the way I feel it. Let's say that uh, you are standing there with a group of your friends, okay? And you start telling a lie about somebody who's not in the room. All right, so here's a group of your friends, and you're talking about, you know, this person who's not in the room, and you're saying things that you know are wrong, and every one of your friends says, oh, yeah, that's right, I, I saw that too, yeah, 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 she's, she's terrible, yeah, that's true, that's true, and, and you know it's wrong, right, but they're all agreeing with you except for one person, and that person is saying, you know what, I don't know that that's really true, I haven't seen that. And you think, well, this person isn't loyal to me. This person isn't loyal to me. That person isn't my friend. I'm not going to trust that person anymore. You know what? You can trust that person more than anyone else. Do you know why? Because they're loyal to the truth and not to you. Anyone who's just loyal to you, wait until you leave the room. (laughs) Just wait until you leave the room. You're next. But if someone is loyal to the truth, you can trust them even when you're not in the room. Do you see how important it is to be loyal to the truth and not just to people? The reason why we need the word evangelical is because we need to be able to say, look, we're not loyal to just a culture. We're not loyal to Americans. We're not just loyal to, uh, to, uh, to our particular brand of faith. We believe we're in pursuit of something that's true. And so you can trust that in another room, we're not going to be stabbing you in the back. You can trust that, that because we're trying to line up, we don't always get it all right. That doesn't mean we get it all right. But it does mean that we're in pursuit of what is true, not just in pursuit of what's convenient to us or what belongs to us so that we can have power and other people can't have power. And so it's really important that we keep a word that speaks to the nature of faith that's historic faith that goes after truth and not just culture alone. Is this making sense? Is this too much, you know, early in the morning? I mean, are you following me? Why it's so important that we have a word, that we be able to describe our faith 
as something that's rooted and grounded in truth and not just in our culture. Second, it's truth that has to get in. All right, so it's true for everybody. It's true for all in time and place. There are 17 kumquats in there, all right? It's true. No matter where you are, anywhere in the world, that's how many are in there. But it has to get personal. Now, now let's look at the difference between just sort of objective, something that's objectively true and something that, that's really personal. All right, let's just say, let's pretend that, that um, your mom uh, calls you and says, hey, your, your grandmother just called this morning, and she says hi. All right, your grandmother called. Okay, that's great. That's one thing. Your grandmother called. Okay, that's a fact. Your grandmother called on the phone. That's a fact. Great. Now, let's, let's pretend that your mom says this, though. Now, your grandmother called, and uh, let's just pretend that you're, you're, you're 17 years old or 18 years old, and no one has ever gone to college in your, in your family's history. And let's just pretend that, that, that your grandmother called and said, uh, you know, um, you're really smart, and we really want you to go to college, and so your grandpa and I have been saving money, and surprise, you can go to college. Now, that, that's, that's true, too. But now, now that's personal, right? Now, your grandmother called is just, is just knowledge, right? It's just information. But now she's giving you some information that affects you personally. And see, when an evangelical believes, and why it's a good word, is not just that we're in pursuit of the truth and so you, 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 we're trustworthy, but it's because we recognize that we don't just need information, we need transformation. We need history to get personal, personal. Let, let, let's, let's give another example. So here's another example. Um, would you all agree that someone is either pregnant or they're not pregnant? They're married or they're not married? Can, can, you, can, you, can we agree on that? I think that's pretty clear, right? And what if somebody said uh, to, to, a, to a young woman, are you pregnant? Well, yeah, kind of. Oh, um, my mom was pregnant once. I mean, my mom has been pregnant several times. Yeah, I've got brothers and sisters. I, I have all kinds of friends. I, I hang out with pregnant people. I, I've got lots of friends that are pregnant. Isn't this the way that some people describe their faith? It's as if it's just a culture to them. It's something that they were born into, but it hasn't gotten personal. The, the verse 19, look at verse 19 again. It says, you believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You, you understand that? Even demons, even something that, that, that's a, a horrible uh, depiction and personalization of something evil can believe that God exists. But what, what James is driving at here is what makes faith real is when it gets in, and when it gets in, it begins to show up in your life. It's not saying that the things that show up in your life save you. Now, listen, listen. Everybody look up here. It, he's not saying that the things that you do save you. He's saying that if you are saved by faith, it will get in and it will show up in your life. It's not saying that the things that show up in your life save you. He's saying that when you are saved by faith, it shows up in your life. He's not saying that if you do the right things, you'll be accepted. He's saying that you are accepted by grace. And when that gets in and gets personal, when grace gets personal, 
it doesn't just inform your life, it transforms your life. It's like your grandmother calling and saying, hey, guess what? We saved money and we want you to go to college. It's like saying, you're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. You're married or you're not married. To be a Christian, you know, that's why we need a word like evangelical because it's not just something cultural. It's something personal, personal. And when people experience the freedom, the interpersonal freedom of grace, when people recognize that they have a flaw that they can't do anything about, and then, then they realize that God has done something, and it's personal, it gets in, it gets personal. Do you follow what I'm saying? When that happens, when you make a connection with grace, when I make a connection with grace, even tomorrow, you can make a new connection with grace, a deeper connection, a connection in part of your life where you didn't think that God even loved you. He knows that you're doing that thing, or he knows that you've been about this. He knows that you've thought these things. And when you can make the connection that God loves you and accepts you, even though those things are true, that begins, when that get, that, that's not just history, that's not just kumquats in a jar, that's personal. That's like you can go to college personal. That's like you really are free from those horrible things you've been thinking about yourself. And here's the last thing. When it really does get personal, when it really gets in, it's history for all time. When it gets in, guess what happens? It wants out. When, when you experience the freedom of grace, it wants out. It begins to spill out. That not just information, but that transformation, it begins to come out. When you're changed and changing, it wants out. You know, um, just like many of you, I have a father. Think about that. That's all right. I just seen if you're awake. Just like many of you, I have a father. And watching him when I was growing up, you know, we didn't always get along. And we didn't know each other very well. And sometimes we locked horns. Sometimes I was a little, I acted out a little bit. But you know what was really powerful? When I saw my dad changing because of his faith, it really got my attention. When I saw my dad, when, when, it, when it really got into his life, he wasn't, trying to, he wasn't shaking his finger or trying to tell me what to do. What was really powerful was seeing him continue to change. When I was a teenager, I noticed that is powerful. You know, whenever you have a story that happens, and it's hilarious, what do you have to do? You gotta tell somebody, right? I mean, if you, somebody tells you a great joke, it's no good if you keep it to yourself. Now, what if, what, if, uh, what if the flu shots actually worked this year, okay? So many of you got flus, uh, flu shots, and it didn't actually work, and you guys had the flu this year. But uh, what if you had the cure to the flu? You actually had the cure, and it was 100% cure rate. Would you hold on to that information? No, it wants out. That's what evangelical means. It's just simply... Truth for all time in history that gets in 
And it, it's not just, it doesn't just inform you, it transforms you. And because it changes you in such a way that gives you a sense of freedom, it wants out. It wants out. And so it comes down to this. It comes down to James saying, look, authentic faith does come out. You can tell that you really do believe in it because you want to see the world changed. You're not going to, like my dad, you're not trying to tinker with people and fix them. You're seeing that this grace is changing you in such a way that you want it for other people. Now, now see if you can follow this. Now, a lot of times what's happening in the way that the word evangelical is being defined is by what people are against. That's terrible when that happens. It's terrible to be known just by what you're against. You see, evangelicals are for. They're for a world that God so loved, right? You know that verse, right? John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the world that God loves, that we love it too, and we want to see, we want to see something happen for that world. I'm going to talk about, I'm going to close with something kind of difficult to talk about and very controversial. And, and, it, and it, it, the word is abortion. It's difficult to talk about that in a church because sometimes you hurt people when you talk about things. And a lot of times, for my gen, when I was your age, evangelicals were defined as being against abortion. They were defined not by what they were for, but by what they were against. Now, a guy that I know uh, named Paul Swope recognized this, and he realized that, that Christians were defining themselves by a particular issue out there, an issue that people were very divided over, an issue that caused a lot of, of fighting, right? And we weighed in hard about it because we believe that, that life starts with conception, right? But what Paul realized, and he did all these experiments with women who were facing uh, an unwanted pregnancy, and what, what he realized was that that, that those women felt like their choice was between their life and the life of their child, and it was a false, false separation. And so when they were presented with these hard truth claims about the child, about the baby, they steeled up and they had, had to have more courage because they were fighting for their own lives in their, their view. But when they were shown a third way, when they were showed something in a winning way, they say, look, we care about you. When they hear a message that says, look, I know you're struggling, and I know you made some mistakes. We don't judge you for that. You're, you're loved. But you're a, you're a life, and, and, and you have another life. And can we think of like a third way where, where there's a way for you both to live and for, for you to have a, a life you've always dreamed and, and, and to have a life for that child and maybe put it up for adoption, that kind of thing? You, you see, that kind of message is a for message. That kind of message says, I'm an evangelical and this is what I stand for, not that what I stand against. And I'm not going to let somebody say, well, you're against these things. I'm going to say, no, you be quiet. I get to say who I am. I get to say what I believe in. I get to say what I stand for. You can't define me. And it's important that we do that. And it's important that we know what we stand for. And it's important that we know why we stand for that. And it's important that we frame things up in such a way that says, we're for the people who are brokenhearted, who got pregnant and didn't, didn't want to get pregnant. We're for them. And, and we, we have the research that says when they have an abortion, it's harmful to them. It hurts them. And we're for those people. We're not just against an issue. And so young people, as you, 
as you, as you go through these, these years leading into college, and it's coming, and it's coming fast, you're going to hear your faith framed up in such a way that is so negative. And guess what? That's your opportunity. Not to be defensive, not to be against anybody, but to say, look, I, I don't know about all that, and, and maybe you've had some bad experiences, but this is what I stand for. And that's why evangelical is a good word. That's why being a Christian is a good thing. Because, because the truth is presented to us in history. And it's real. It's real. It's, it's real as, as, as getting the number right in the jar. And that truth is not just information, but it transforms us because it's a grace that comes to us through Christ. And when that truth really gets in, it really wants out. But it needs to get out in a way that has action for the world that God so loves. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us, demonstrated in so many different ways, not just on the cross, but in the air that we breathe and the friends that we have, the life that we share. Lord God, would you help us to so embrace the truth about your love for us that it would change us, it would change us not to be obnoxious to people, but it would change us to be, have a winsome witness for the life to which you've called us. In Jesus' name, amen.